Okay, well, welcome to a special episode of the Knees Up Mother Brown West Ham podcast, and we're delighted this week just to have a chat with ex-West Ham employee about his long and storied history at the club. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you? Yeah, very well, very well. We've got James here too. Hello, mate. <laughs> so, Hello, so we really, we, we, we want, I mean, I think the things we're most interested in is the kind of personalities around the club that you would have, you would have met, and what was your thoughts on Harry Redknapp? Was he a nice guy? Um, I think he was nicer at West Ham. I mean, obviously, I'm going to say that since he's been uh, he's moved to Tottenham, it kind of put me off a bit. But um, yeah, I, he, he seems to have got a bit more. Um, I don't know what's the word, harsh and cynical. Perhaps as he got older, but certainly at West Ham, he was you know well respected and well liked by the players. I mean, the players, you know, such as the Canio and um, that sort of personality, really warmed to him. He was. And he got the best out of a lot of players. And you look at a number of players West Ham signed that were towards the end of their career, or perhaps um, you know had had a couple of poor seasons. People like Trevor Sinclair, um, Neil Ruddock, perhaps Stuart Pearce, that sort of player. He got the best out of them, and a lot of it was down to man management. Since he left the club, my opinion has changed a bit. But um, yeah, certainly at West Ham, he was a popular figure. Mm. And what was the dressing room like? I mean, during those Redknapp days, you had some amazing characters around the place, like, like as you say, Stuart Pearce, Paolo Di Canio, um, Ian Wright, Neil Ruddock. What was the what was the kind of atmosphere like around the club at those times? Those times. My experiences was it was very you know jovial certainly and very um you know bubbly. I mean, those characters you mentioned. You also had John Monker. John Monker, possibly the funniest and uh, most entertaining player I've ever seen play, and ever had the pleasure to meet as well. But he was a real positive. Impact. Influence there, and yeah, Neil Ruddock, Ian Wright, Paolo Di Canio, even you know players like uh, slightly before that, people like Slavin Bilic had a big personality that, and again, very popular. You know, Julian Dix, Paul Kitson was another um, joker, um, a moody joker, but a joker, and um, yeah, so it was a good vibe. Mm. I'm surprised to hear you say Paul Kitson was a joker. He always seemed quite serious. What kind of, was he? A prankster? Um, yeah, just it was quite sharp-witted, um, kind of like a Jack D sense of humour um, was my experience. I mean, obviously, if you got him on a, a bad day, what, the moodiness that you saw on the pitch uh, was also the moodiness you experienced. But um, yeah, I think he, in my in my um, experience of him, yeah, he was quite a witty kind of uh, yeah funny guy. Mm. So, in your role uh, when you used to work at West Ham, did you have like daily contact with the players and management? No, unfortunately, my my role wasn't. Uh, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't as high profile as that, shall we say? Mm. Um, so, I mean, you mentioned John Moncur there. I mean, we've all heard the stories of him like running out naked and training and that. I mean, is, was he really as crazy as the stories suggest? Oh, yeah. I mean, I can remember one time, um, obviously, he was infamous for coming on the pitch and getting booked within seconds. But I can remember the time when, uh, you know, he was warming up as a sub, linesman, you know, doing his thing along the line, shuffling along. And Moncur was shadowing him the whole way along the line. And this must have gone on for about, you know, five, ten minutes before the linesman even clocked it. Uh, I can't remember what game it was, but um, it was certainly towards Moncur's, um, yeah, the end of his career. And then, obviously, you've, you've, you've mentioned the infamous story where he... Uh, Ran onto the training ground uh, naked, just wearing uh, football boots and socks, claiming he couldn't find his kit in the uh, yeah, midwinter um, huh. period. So, yeah, that's a very, a, a very well documented story, one that's kind of gone down in legend. I think players such as Rio Ferdinand and Frank Lampard were around at that time. And, yeah, that's a story that I've, I have heard repeated, uh, certainly by Rio. 
I think if you're going to pull that stunt, don't do it in the winter. <laughs> no. I say do it in the warm, warmer climes, you know, show yourself right. off a little bit. You're not the most flattering. No, you certainly wouldn't win the uh, longest in the shower on Sky Sports, would you? I'm fucker I am. So, so during during that just towards the end of Redknapp's reign, um, Frank Lampard w- was sold, and I mean, and, and Frank Lampard had a real kind of bitterness towards West Ham. Um, mm. w- but what did did you experience any of that while he was still there? I mean, how was his exit from the club? Um, whilst he was there, he was one of the you know the hardest working players in the training ground. He stayed there hour after hour after hour. Um, he wasn't actually naturally that good when he was younger. I mean, for West Ham fans probably would say that. I mean, he had the had the the skills, but certainly fitness and other things he had to work on shooting, for example. When he would stay afterwards for hours, he you know as it went on, and I think periods of the club um, before he left there was obviously that he's only in the team because of his dad and that did you know grace on him as, as it would and then towards the end of course Redknapp and his dad um, Redknapp being his uncle his uh, Lampard being his dad of course were Saxon you know if someone did that to my uncle and dad I probably would feel quite resentful um, and then you know he didn't have the best relationship with the fans for now as has been well documented he um, yeah, he doesn't look back on his time at West Ham too fondly, but um, yeah, as part of it, you can understand, although I don't think he's handled himself overly well since he left either. Mm. I remember that great quote when he left, when it, he, he pretty much said something like, um, yeah, the club was run really badly and, you know, the training wasn't this and, and, and mm. the team wasn't that, and it, it was his dad and his uncle. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, probably not the best thing to um, yeah, say about your daddy. Probably yeah, got um, grounded for the next couple of uh, weeks, ah. shall we say, after that. Mm. So, so, I mean, towards the end, as Lampard was getting sold, um, Harry Redknapp lost his job, I think, just before uh, Lampard was sold. I mean, what's the true story behind Redknapp sacking? Um, my understanding is that, obviously, we sold Rio, got 18 million for it. We'd then bought a number of players um, for... Um, with that money, you know, Rigobert Song, T.T. Kamara, um, legends like that, Ragnarvold Sommer, I think it was pronounced, those sorts of players who never, you know, amounted to much at all, um, certainly as the case of T.T. Kamara, um, first name, I guess is a bit of a clue, but he, um, yeah, he really, really kind of wasted that money, and then my understanding is he then went back and said he needed more money, and it was questioned as to why Kamara and Rigobert Song were bought from Liverpool, where... Uh, Redknapp um, did have some ties and I just think the relationship was strained with the board more due to the fact that the wastage of money towards the end mm. and I mean did you have much dealings with Terry Brown um, yeah not not overly directly but I, I did yeah I have met him a couple of times mm. well, and what was your opinion of him <laughs> um, I thought sometimes he was a, you know, a decent chairman for us. He did support the club after all, but you, you do have to look at where a lot of our money went and you do have to look at the sort of youth players that have came through the club and why we never really moved on to another level. I mean, I, it's difficult for me to say too much, but yeah, I, I, my, I'm indifferent towards him, shall we say. Mm. So, I mean, Terry Brown's next act after sacking Redknapp was to appoint Glenn Roder. Um, mm-hmm. and, and how soon did the atmosphere change around the club? Um, 
when Rhoda first came in, it was it, you know it wasn't too bad. He had a quite a good season. Uh, first season, you know, got a few players playing well. It looked like we were actually going to go places, but then obviously we had that disastrous second season. Um, one thing that sticks in my mind really clearly was um, I went to a meeting and Rhoda was there, and I was speaking to him. And you know, this seems ridiculous, but I really didn't think Paolo De Canio was very good on corners. Um, good on everything else, of course. One of my favourite ever West Ham players, but when it came to corners. Never really beat the first man. Really disappointing. And we had Michael Carrick. It all seems silly now, seeing how these players have gone on. And obviously, Michael Carrick's not known for his corner taking, but at the time, he had, you know, a whip, a bit of a curl on the corner. And I'd seen it in training, always seemed a better corner taker than Decanio. I said to Rhoda, why is it, you know, um, Decanio takes it and not Carrick? Have you ever tried it? Never worked with Decanio. And he said to me, um, have you tried telling Paolo not to take a corner? And that was it. That was his closing statement. And I said, well, I'm not the manager. You know, that's your that's your job. And, uh, yeah, and that kind of really, to me, represented how he was um, respected towards the end of his, his reign. Hmm. So it was, it was a case of just the players just losing respect for him and doing what they wanted? It, it seemed that way, certainly to Canio. And then, obviously, Rhoda took the decision to... You know, drop him and, and, and not play him when, you know, when you're in a relegation battle and you're struggling and, and the manager's leaving out your star player, it doesn't go down too well. A similar thing happened to Roder at Norwich. Um, I know a little bit about that club and he he took over there, really wound the fans up. There was one meeting when he said to a supporter who had questioned him, I don't think I've ever seen you manage um, a professional club, and he had that kind of atmosphere, but he did it to Darren Huckabee as well, who, you know, Norwich fans, he is an absolute legend there, and he came in, decided he wasn't going to play him, didn't offer him a new contract because he wanted to make his point, then the club got relegated, um, and then, you know, that was, the rest is history, so it kind of repeated itself. Hmm. So something we hear, like when we hear about Rhoda, is that he, he had kind of like quite a big head too. Is I mean, he had a chip on his shoulder almost. Is that your experience? Yeah, exactly that. He did seem to be quite a bitter person, shall I say? I mean, my experiences of him was that he was, um, yeah, he, he he was quite quite arrogant, shall we say? And yeah, and he didn't take kindly to criticism. Perhaps, obviously, in his managerial career, he had quite a lot, and it was his way of dealing with it. But um, yeah, my, my experiences were like that, and I've heard, you know, similar things at uh, you know other clubs. Well, that he managed to, um, after West Ham. Mm. So after he departed, then in came uh, uh, in between a period of. Tra- well, actually, let's talk about Trevor Brooking because I mean, Glenn mm-hmm. Rhoda left, and then Brooking came in. How was yeah. it working? How was Brooking around the place? You know, a complete change, and you've seen by the fact that we almost stayed up under him after the disastrous season. The you know instant respect from the players, club legend, well, very popular, um, knew his stuff, intelligent man as well, um, grammar school educated, which of course is rare in uh, football. He um, yeah, he uh, really won the uh, the, fa- the players, sorry, over and the fans, and it looked like we were going to stay up had we got him, you know, three or four games earlier, and I think we would have, so, yeah, real change, and then, of course, took over again, um, we were in the championship again, had that vibe, just a shame he never kind of stayed longer than he did. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, we know, as soon as um, Brooking took over, like, Decanio was back in the team, and, and was it a case of Decanio, uh, like, having, the, like, the respect, like, did he yeah. really respect Brooking, and that made a big change? Yeah, I think it's totally that, I mean, Brooking came in, put his arm around Decanio, which was 
at the best kind of man management for Paolo and said to him, you know, you are the star of this team, you are the best player here, I need you to keep us up along those lines. And, um, yeah, and, he, and that is what Paolo needed. He came in, obviously scored that goal against Chelsea and played a large part in other results um, towards the end of the season and yeah I mean it doesn't in my eyes it doesn't make um, a particular football genius to notice that um, you stand more chance of winning if your best players in the team mm. so, so after Brooking did his little caretaker stint we had then had Alan Pardew come in uh, what was your first impressions of Alan Pardew? Um, he was uh, an ambitious um, character. He was very enthusiastic. He was a good man um, manager and a good motivator when he first came in. Um, you know, there was a bit of um, he dealt. He struggled with kind of the expectations a little bit. But then, you know, obviously that second season when we got promoted via the playoffs and the season after that with the um, cup final, it, he had really kind of got the players on with him. All the kind of players respected him and they really you know liked being in his side he made them feel good he entrusted players from a young age obviously Rio Coca was made captain um, a decision when we look back now that <laughs> seems a strange one but he was made captain and you know people like Anton Ferdinand those sorts of players really kind of grew under Pardew Mm. But, but what happened then? Because there was a, there was that stage where he seemed to lose the respect of, of all the players. Was that because mm-hmm. of alleged uh, behind the scenes actions? Uh, <laughs> um, I, it's hard to comment on. I, I you know I kind of do have heard the stories, of course, like we all have, and I, I'd imagine should they be true, allegedly, shall we say? Then of course <laughs> that's going to affect things. I think with also his. The management of Tevez and Mascarano, obviously, they came in. Uh, and again, best players kind of sitting on the sub bench. Um, there was that issue, but then there was also the issue of the players, you know, not particularly gelling with them. So, yeah, I think off the field uh, <laughs> activities and, um, yeah, so like the kind of the struggle to get well cast players like Tevez and Mascarano performing and gelling with the rest of the team. I mean, the decision to play. Hayden Mullins over Mascarano was a, a questionable one, shall we say. But, I mean, what was your interpretation? Why do you think Pardew was dropping uh, Mascarano for uh, Mullins? Was it to kind of put put his stamp on the team? What, what was he thinking? I think it was his loyalty to the players that had done well. And, you know, take nothing away from Hayden Mullins. He did do a very good job for West Ham. Um, he was a you know, decent player. The fact that he was suspended for the cup final was a real shame. Um, but, you know, I think, yeah, I think the problem was it's just that He's got this world-class player, and he's choosing, you know, uh, uh, no disrespect, Hayden Mullins. Hayden Mullins over him. Of course, Mascarano is not going to be happy with that. Of course, Tevez is not going to be happy with that either. And they were taking a while to adjust, but it wasn't helped by the fact that they were kept out of the team. Hmm. So, so obviously, he, Pardew lost the dressing room at some point. I mean, what was the atmosphere like around the club in those final months of Pardew? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think a change was was right at the time. I mean, there did seem to be a real, you know, rapid difference between you know the, the cup final to then. I, I mean, I can't really say too much of what went on, but clearly something had happened, and, and he'd lost lost the kind of the the players there, and it, it just really kind of it was too hard to win back. And, of course, the new chairman came in and they wanted to make their mark as well. So the relationship with, with them wasn't great either. 
Mm. So, I mean, what was it like when the Icelandics first come in and Eggy and all that? I mean, what was your impression of them? <laughs> well, as a, as a passionate West Ham fan, I loved it. They were walking around um, saying how much money they were going to spend. Every player was a was a target. Um, no fee or wage was an issue. I, I mean, a story from those days was that I think it was Lindbergh turned up expecting to get a much lesser salary than he got but it was the chairman kind of was just getting a bit overly excited and he ended up walking away with more money than he'd even imagined yeah. and you know that unfortunately was the case with a number of players you look at the wages that um, Dyer and Lundberg and Upton and even Scott Parker to an extent of course he then earned that wage but yeah they, it was just a bit ridiculous so when they first came in I was really excited obviously I didn't anticipate how much it would collapse under them um, looking back now it was just <laughs> immaturity for want of a better word they just got really eggy for example just got extremely carried away I mean I remember seeing him around the club and just being really <laughs> like a, a young school kid a bit like Jack Sullivan shall we say really overly excited about everything and um, yeah and this was the guy that was spending large amounts of our money Mm. So, I mean, no one, I guess no one was asking any questions where this money was coming from. They just assumed mm-hmm. that they were investing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you had the whole story that the Icelandic banks were funding it and so on, because, of course, um, it was biscuit-making as well, which is a strange kind of um, uh, industry to associate with a mega, um, you know, million takeover of a football club. But, yeah, it was, it was always a bit hard to kind of pinpoint exactly where it was coming from. Icelandic banks being the main thing, and then, of course, the collapse of those meant the collapse of West Ham in many ways, and we're still paying the, the price of that. Mm. So, I mean, it, does Eggy have any kind of relationship with the club? Does he ever go back there now? Has anyone heard from him? <laughs> he wanted to. He was trying to get involved and buy a small um, percentage of the club, I think, at one point, and there was talk that he'd been in touch with the current chairman trying to get back involved, but of course, when the chairman is still paying off the, the Tevez debt up until, I think, the last month, and still <laughs> suffering the price of Kieran Dyer, I think his total net spend came to about £25 million if you include the signing on fee, the transfer fee, the wages and so on, and of course we all know how successful his career was, so I don't think he was a welcome figure, shall we say. Mm. So, last last question, just so on Big Sam now, so we've got Big Sam in there now, I mean, and, and how how is everyone around the club uh, with Big Sam in charge? Big Sam's a, yeah, a, a popular figure, you know not to mess with him, I was speaking to someone the other day, who basically told me it's like being at, over oh, here it reminds him of being at school when you get sent to the headmaster if you do something wrong, he has that kind of, you know, authoritative presence, I think he's a good vibe around the club, I think the players do respect him, certainly respect him a lot more than they did the likes of Rhoda, for example, you, you can't argue with what he's achieved at West Ham, you know, first season got us promoted, second season kept us in the Premiership, obviously there's a few question marks at the moment, but with our move to the Olympic Stadium, we need stability, we need to be established Premiership team, at the moment, touch wood, it looks like we're going to be, and I think majority of players are fully behind him, of course players like Tomkins, who haven't you know, really figured as much as they would have liked to under him, have had their, their grumbles and their and their wishes to play. But, um, you know, that would happen at any club. I think, on the whole, you know, Big Sam's very well respected. Mm, excellent. And last question, the Olympic Stadium, yeah. are you looking forward to it? Yeah, for me, I think it is the right move for us. Of course, when it was first announced, I had my doubts, my 
you know, family have been going to West Ham for, you know, decades and decades. And I've had same seat myself for many years. It, it, you know, you lose that tradition, you lose those memories. But if we're going to move on to the next level, I think it's the, the only thing that was going to naturally happen that would take us to the next level. You've got... Uh, a stadium for next to nothing, a state-of-the-art stadium, a stadium that will attract players and visitors, the likes to, to join us, you know, better transport links. It, it's just, you look at what happened to Man City, and I don't believe they would be where they are now had they not got that new stadium. And I think, hopefully, it will have the same effect on West Ham for me. I can understand people's doubts, but for me, it's it, it has to happen for us to... Um, be achieving the things we want to achieve in a few years. Excellent. Thank you so much, ex-West Ham United employee. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. You too. Thank you. Thank you. Take it easy. Yeah, take care. Cheers. Wait. And that's, thanks very much. That was uh, Express Time United employee. Thanks for listening. Um, we'll be back next week with another show. If you want to stay in contact with the show, you can do so by going on the KUMB.com uh, forums. You can follow the editor at, at KUMBDOTCOM on Twitter. Also follow, follow James on Long as One and myself on CJ's Goal, Goal with a C. So take care. We'll see you next week. Come on, you wines. Come on, you wines.